Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Hey, um, we're going to try something at the end that we haven't done in a while, but uh, we'll do a little Q&A. Like you can text in a question. Uh, it can be about the message. It can be about anything you want. And, you know, if it's too crazy, I'll just skip it. Um, but there's, the, there's the, the Google Voice number. It really, is, uh, it really is anonymous. Like I have the app on my phone. I don't sync it to contacts. And so, and I'm too lazy to go try to find out. Plus, I gave you my word. So there's that. We'll do that at the end. But um, did you know that Psalm chapter 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible? It's also basically right in the center of the Bible, but it's, it's even cooler than that. It's a chapter in the Bible that's all about the Bible. It's all about God's word. It's, it's even cooler than that. It's a, an acrostic in the original language of Hebrews. Now, you can, you're not going to find um, in the singular the language of Hebrew. You're not going to find it in English, and you know most of us don't read Hebrew, but eight verses in each stanza, and then within each stanza, the verses begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it goes on for 22 stanzas, 176 verses, all praising God's word. And it uses different words for God's word, like commandments and law, Decrees, promises, regulations, statutes, word. Let me, I just want to read a few verses. Here's the first two stanzas. It goes like this. Blessed are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Blessed are the people who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in God's paths. And then he says to God, you have charged us to obey your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. How can a young person stay pure? And then he answers his own question, by obeying your word. I've tried hard to find you, God. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I've recited out loud all the regulations you've given us. I've rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and forget not your word. That's just like 16 of 176 verses all about the word of God. Okay, God exists and he has spoken. That's actually a pretty decent starting point for the Christian faith because the Bible begins, Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God, right? And then it doesn't go on and try to argue God's existence. It just assumes it from the very beginning, but then the silence is shattered in Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse three, by saying, and then God said, and then he does that a lot. He says something 
and then it happens. Creation. There's this phrase, general revelation. It's not really in the Bible. It's like about the Bible. It's the idea that creation, like people, plants, animals, earth, sky, space, that creation reveals something about the creator. That's general revelation. But then there's special revelation, this idea that to really know about God, like who he is, his character, what he desires, this will take special revelation, where God makes himself known to actual people in indefinite time and place and space with the purpose of people entering into a redemptive relationship with him. And the Bible, like one way of looking at it, is that the Bible is a written record of some of that special revelation. And I say some because, for example, if Jesus is indeed God in flesh, then everything that Jesus did and said would be special revelation. But we know, I mean, John says it specifically toward the end, John 21, specifically that like, um, and this is just a little bit of what Jesus began to do and teach, because if we wrote everything he did, I suppose, John says, I suppose there aren't enough uh, books in all the libraries to hold all of that knowledge. So we only have a little bit recorded of all that Jesus did and said. So it's some of that special revelation. And not everything recorded in the Bible came through special revelation, right? Like, here's an example. There's plenty. Exodus chapter 5. Moses observes that Pharaoh is like forcing the Israelites to make brick or clay without providing them with straw. Now, writing about that, for Moses to write about that, it didn't take divine revelation for that. So the Bible reveals ultimately, or at least at not, maybe not even ultimately, first, God's character, what he desires, how he works. But ultimately, the Bible reveals Jesus. Here's the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character and likeness of God. So the Bible. Now, let's be honest. It's complex, right? Anybody who says it's not hasn't been reading the Bible. It's complex in its content, right? Um, But there's also complexity on what we bring to it, our presuppositions, our confirmation bias. So the presuppositions we bring to it, but also the expectations we put on it. And most of this, I think, comes from like subconsciously through our culture, through our upbringing. So here's part of the aim in this series, God Breathed. Part of the aim is to help us approach scripture on its own terms versus expecting it to maybe be something that it never said that it was. That'll, that'll be one of the the goals. And so to do this, we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at some of the big picture narrative of the Bible, but also to dig in to find gems of subtle underneath the surface truths. But I want to start within, like our hearts, and not necessarily spiritually, but technically, right? Thinking about what we often bring to the, no, let me back up. What we always bring to the Bible is just part of being human. 
We bring to it our confirmation biases, our experiences, not just in life, but with the Bible and, and hearing about the Bible because our, our, our ideas about the Bible are mostly shaped by what we've been told, or at least early on, by what we've been told about it and our experiences around it more than our ideas are shaped by actually reading it. I'm not saying that's not how it's shaped and how we've worked to shape it now. I'm talking about early on. Because very few within the modern world, at least in America and most of Europe, is going to have no access to anything about the Bible. They may not have any, like, time in it. And not just America and Europe, all over the world. And that reality that we bring these confirmation biases and these ways of thinking about the Bible to the Bible, that's not a bad thing, that's a human thing. But if we don't begin there, if we don't acknowledge that, then we're gonna miss its brilliant. And there is this unspoken expectation that the Bible is like a, a magic eight ball, shake it up, see what you get, that it's like this step-by-step -step manual. And that, this, this way of looking at the Bible is part of the answer to why people get so frustrated when they actually crack it open and begin to read. Because what they find there is not a step-by-step -step magic kind of a thing, because maybe it was never meant to be that. What we have is something like thousands of years worth of history described, moments, but also poetic expressions linked to a collective experience of God. So discovering what happened is really important, but discovering what God is like is supreme, and I believe that ultimately that's what the purpose of the scriptures is. But let's begin with, uh, with this. This is gonna sound like super, super smart. You ready? Some people a long time ago wrote some things down. And they didn't write a book. Most of you know this, but it's not a book. It's, it's a lot of different people wrote, wrote a lot of different kinds of writings, which by the way, the word scripture means writings. They wrote a lot of this down that were eventually collected and then organized. And then what we've got now is 66 books of various genres on three different continents, three different languages over a span as far as it, I'm not talking about the chronology that's being written about, but how long it took to write these writings that have been collected into what we now call the Bible, 1,500 years by some 40 diverse authors. That's the Bible, right? And many of the early Genesis stories, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, they began as oral traditions. They were handed down generation after generation, some of them maybe thousands and thousands of years, like really, really old stories. And these authors made decisions about what would be included and what wouldn't be included. And we know that because like John writes in John chapter 20 in the New Testament, John 20 verse 30, he said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Like John decided, I'm not gonna tell about this, I'm gonna tell about this. I'm not gonna tell about this, but I'm gonna tell about this. Luke begins his gospel in chapter uh, one, verse three. He said, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Like there's, I also, because there's been these other accounts already. Esther in the Old Testament, ch uh, chapter one, verse one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Well, there were a lot of things that happened during the time of King Xerxes, but here's something. 
and on and on it goes. I believe that scripture is more than just details, though. You likely do, too. It's part of the reason you're here. I believe that the word of God is divine. It's from God, something God used and uses to speak to us here and now. And maybe you don't believe that, but either way, it's important to recognize first that whatever this is, at the beginning, it's something that's human. The writers were real people living in real places, and what they wrote about was shaped by their very real time and background. It's mostly written by Hebrew people living under the oppression of certain military superpowers in the ancient world. Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. And while the context and the filters through which these authors wrote what they were experiencing, while these filters are ancient, here's what they wrote about in these ancient times. Are you ready? Love, fear, politics, faith, doubt, anger, justice, technology. That's a big part of what the story of David and Goliath is all about. Hope and betrayal. Things we're still talking about today. And so part of the reason not to read the Bible as if it's something that just kind of fell out of the sky from heaven, right, is that you're gonna miss how beautifully human it is. But under the surface, and I believe within Scripture, is a stick of dynamite. This is kind of what the Bible says about itself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The first part of the verse, it says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. This word for living, right? This, this word, uh, uh, zao, I don't really know how to pronounce it in, in Greek. I hear it a couple different ways, but, but this idea of living, to live or to, or to breathe. And then there's this idea of active. So you've got this like breath, life, like we were given by God, breathed into. And then you've got this word active. Um, it's, it's basically like the, uh, the word means energy, like something that's energized so it can be active. Now, they didn't have technology the way we do now, so they're thinking a little bit different, but like an explosion. It's alive. It's living. And I know it's trendy. I'm going to make an analogy, and so I, I'm, I'm honest about I know it's trendy to ignore biology in favor of cultural and political agenda right now with, with, with some very small percentages advocating for like this complicated feeling of, of gender dysphoria as reality. So because what I'm going to say next, I need to acknowledge that that exists with, within our culture, this uh, adv- advocating. But I, th- I think everyone still believes that our biology makes us human. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says that God breathed the breath of life into human beings, right? That like, because when it says that, it br- God breathed into the man's nostrils and he became a living being. So before that, he wasn't like alive. And you can look at that a lot of different ways. I don't know how you read the early chapters the first few chapters of Genesis, I tend to see a lot of poetry there, um, which again, poetry is not, it's not like it's not truth. I think it's more true than literal. That's how poetry works. But it's like this thing that wasn't living or maybe potentially conscious 
until God breathes in and activates. So it's this idea that like spirit animates matter. And here's my point, that something similar is at work in scripture, that it's alive. And it does something in those who would be also alive in spirit, but be alive even more, awakened, activated by the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful for teaching, for showing people what is wrong in their lives, for correcting faults, and for teaching how to live godly. Now, first of all, notice what it doesn't say the word of God is used for. There's a lot of things it doesn't say, but one of the things it doesn't say is that it's supposed to be used as a weapon to wield against those who disagree with you. <laughs> right? But then this word inspired, all scripture is inspired by God. It, that, that one word in English is actually two words in Greek. It's the word God and the word to breathe. God breathed. The root word for breathe, it's used in Acts 27 when Paul is on a boat, on a ship. And, it ta- and there's a storm and the wind moves the sails and therefore moves the ship, the wind It's the same word, breath. God breathed, God wind. And so Paul is using this term to poetically say the Bible ultimately comes from God. But that term, God breathed, doesn't really tell us how God moved those who wrote these things. Like how did God move that? So 2 Peter chapter one, verse 20 speaks to this. I don't think it answers it in a way that is just gonna satisfy us all, but it speaks to it. It says, above all, You must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God, here it is, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 27? The wind comes in, gets the sails. The word Luke uses in Acts to carry, the wind carried the the ship forward. Same word that Peter uses here, that, that the, the writer of the scriptures was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible seems to be a partnership between God and the author, not some kind of funky possession. You know, they everything down, and then they get done with it, and they're like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that. I had no idea. The goal of God-breathed scripture is to carry and move things forward, history, life, humanity, but it's also used to carry and move us individually closer to God. I want to give you an example of this early in scripture, in the writing of scripture. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. By the way, this is really where the Bible starts, in the book of Exodus. I know you got Genesis, really old stories, but it's Moses who's writing Genesis, Exodus, you have the people of God, the Israel, the Jewish people, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God uses Moses to free, to bring the slaves out, the Exodus. And these people don't have, like, how do we live? How do we govern ourselves? What are the rules? And then God speaks to Moses. Now, what's our story? We have a lot of oral traditions, but so Moses writes Genesis, like the preface, not just to the Hebrew people, but to all people. 
Okay. Exodus chapter 21, right? 400 years of slavery. God gives them laws like Exodus 20, 10 commandments, some worship requirements, and then listen to this. 21 verses 1 through 3. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, he goes, she goes with him. On and on and on and on. Now, in, in the ancient world, you know this. Slavery was how a lot of poor people survived. Like really poor people, because most people were poor, at least by our standards. And often they would sell themselves into some kind of servanthood. And while you won't, what you won't find, because I know, and it's not, it's not just your generation. Generation X was like this too. But it's not like we just showed up on the planet enlightened, right? I know we act like that and we think that everything before us is like, especially the 90s, right? Oh my word, like they're so backwards or whatever. That's when I grew up. That's why I was making fun of that. But like, but, but we didn't just arrive. There's been so much before us. And in the ancient, but what you won't find is God condoning or commanding slavery. But what you do find, not just with this topic, but so many, is God meeting people where they were in history and moving forward from there. The shock when you read Exodus 21, if you're like paying attention at all and letting a text be what it is. As long as you're doing that, then the shock is not that there was slavery in the ancient world, right? Like any student of history knows that. The shock is the massive wave of ethics surrounding this kind of slavery that God was demanding of his people, right? This idea of the seventh year, you go free, you just go free, right? And, and if you have a wife, when you, when you sell yourself into slavery, she goes with you. This was, and there's so much more there. I read like a little piece. It was unheard of. There was nothing, no, there was nothing even like this, kind of like this in the ancient world. I'm going to skip my example, but I had uh, chapter 21. If you read on seven through 10, you can read some unthinkable progression among female rights, which wouldn't even be, have been a phrase that many thousands of years ago. But we read this kind of stuff and it all feels so ancient and barbaric, right? Because it is ancient and barbaric because this was like 5,000 years ago. But God never says this is how things should be. He starts with reality and slowly moves things forward. And if you read the Bible with that kind, if you start with that kind of human honesty, then you're going you're gonna to see it over and over and over again. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And regarding human rights, the real reason we feel so enlightened, I've said this before, it's not because our culture is more civilized. It's our culture is more Christian. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it might be the first recorded, like documented, like all humans are equal type of a thing. Thousands of years ago, Paul writes, now there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all sinfully equal. Now some of us, if we're honest, we cringe 
at the Bible. You find it so unenlightened. But remember, again, we're ahead in history. We're looking back when God was then moving something forward. Like, like often light years ahead of where they were there, ultimately getting them and the world to Jesus. So when we read it, we're already at least partially ahead in the story where that moment was leading to. It's now hindsight. And we live in a very polarizing time as if there's ever a time in history where it wasn't polarizing. But here's where we live now, right? When we live. And there's a lot of like, we're pressured to where our ideology is very cultic and it's on every extreme. And it's tempting for some of us to think that God was or is moving things toward our way of thinking, our belief structure versus moving us further toward Jesus. Now, this matters if you want to take the Bible serious and draw closer to God there because you will lose him quick when you come armed passionately with your ideology because your confirmation bias is going to allow you to find whatever cultic ideology that you've bought into. You'll find it there, but you'll end up missing him because he shares space with no one. God didn't seem interested in creating a utopian culture, like, or at least even, even like the idea of a utopian culture, like 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, so that the people of 2021 would come along and say, I'm not going to cancel this. I approve. This is good stuff. I don't cringe at any of this. It doesn't seem like God was super interested in that. He was interested in something bigger. So we haven't arrived But when we approach scripture, our first filter is going to be culture and our experience with the Bible in the past. But you got to go further. You got to look for the new thing emerging, the new ideas that we're getting worked out. And right when you think those ideas have been fully realized here and now, think again. We're probably a long way off. So what I want to do is I want to give you this give you something else early in scripture where God was moving things forward, but it's also a metaphor, or at least I want to use it as such, for trusting God as you approach the Bible. It's the the character of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It says in the earliest uh, verses of Genesis 12 that God reveals himself to Abraham, who was a pagan. He worshiped lots of gods, like all the people of his day did. And God said, go from your land, from your people and your tribe. Go to where I'll show you. I will make you great, and I'll bless all tribes through you. Now, this alone was a massive new idea. Like, history was static. You stayed with your tribe. You stayed with your people. You didn't go out. Like, the hero's journey, this was a new idea. But Abraham trusts God, and he goes And this God spends a lot of time telling Abraham about the good that God will do for Abraham and through Abraham, not just for Abraham, though, but for all tribes everywhere. And then in Genesis 15, he takes Abraham outside, and he says, count the stars as if he could. And he says, whatever number that is, that's how many people are going to come from you. I'm going to make you into a, a nation. Now, stop there for a minute, because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, It says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur 
of the Chaldeans to give you this promise. The, the Chal, Chaldeans or Chaldea, Chaldea, it was famous for astrology and astronomy. So I'm, I'm curious, I can't prove it, but I wonder if Abraham was one of those star gazers. And it was like his interest in the stars that somehow led him to this idea that there must be of all the gods, there must be a God on top, right? And God speaks his language, has him look at the stars. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, God says these promises and it says Abraham believes God, right? And that was credited to him as righteousness, and I don't know if you sigh a little bit when you hear things like that in the Bible and you think, God, I wish you would speak to me. But let me point something out that, that's actually an important theme throughout the Bible. Abraham was 75 years old. From the time God began speaking with Abe, he was 75 is when he started, until his death at 175. So for 100 years, there are eight recorded times God talks to Abraham with decades of silence. And rarely, they rarely talk about things that, that religious people so desire God to speak to them about. It's more practical. And often, Abraham is left more confused than enlightened when God speaks. So, what would you prefer? Brief talks directly with God eight times in life that are often very confusing or a collection of books showing you what God is like and how you can come to know and experience him through his very active and present spirit because of what Christ did. And then Genesis 15, Abraham believes God, but he wonders, how is this going to happen? How am I going to have all these, you know, this big nation because I don't even have a child or a son specifically that can carry on. The, the tribe. So God says, okay, let's, let's cut a deal. But like, it doesn't explain this because the people that were reading this, the, the original audience, they understood this. When God says, here's what we're going to do. Abraham, go get two animals and cut them both in half. Everybody reading that went, oh, they're going to cut a deal. Because it's kind of where our English phrase, cut a deal, comes from. What you do is if you and I are going to cut a deal, we're going to make promises, a covenant to each other, I'm going to cut up an animal in half because animals were very precious in the ancient world. It's how you eat, but it's also how you trade and make money and survive. But I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to cut it in half, you're going to cut yours in half, you're going to walk down the two, you know, I should have had some kind of like, like model, I should, not, not like a cut up animal, but uh, anyway, you walk down... The, the two aisles, and you say your promise of the deal. But you're saying that if I don't keep my part of the deal, may I end up like this animal. Cut me up. So Abraham goes and gets the animals, and he cuts them all up. He cuts up both sides, all this. But then he falls asleep, a deep sleep. And then the unthinkable happens. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. This symbolizes in scripture often God's presence. It passes between this animal, this cut up animal. It passes between. And then it passes between this one. Which, by the way, how did Abraham fall asleep? Why? Thank God, like, put him to sleep, right? Gave him some tea or a little something, something, and he falls asleep, and God goes down both sides, and he makes both ends of the deal. 
He commits to upholding both ends, even if Abraham fails. This is a beautiful picture of a major biblical theme theme that God has good in mind for the world. And the cocktail of grace and truth will be his means. And he invites us into this covenant relationship with him, but he's the one who promises to make it all work. Whatever your weird rituals are, God will meet you there. Because this is what's so crazy to me about the Old Testament when, when like new believers come to the Bible and they read all these weird like, you know, ancient animal sacrifice stuff. They're like, oh my gosh, why does God care about this? It's so weird. He doesn't care. Like, All you have to do is just read anything in the ancient world outside of the Bible. It's what people did back then, right? So God meets people there. He knows how people cut deals. Yo, Abe, go get a couple bulls, cut them up, right? Like Abraham does it. That's what people do. And you've got some weird things too. So do I. God will meet you right there. The Bible is not easy, but why should it be? And because of what it is, how could it be easy and simple? But we have scriptures as this living and active dynamite to propel us forward into an even more living and active experience of faith. I want you to listen to Psalm chapter, not 119, but 19. Just verses 7 through 8. It describes how God's word moves and changes us. Verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul, this poetic idea of encouragement. The statutes of the, law, of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The scriptures give us wisdom. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, causing the heart to be glad that the Bible, the word of God, brings joy. And finally, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. This is a poetic way of talking about perspective. But in all of it, in all of it, it points in all of the scriptures in what it tells us about and what it does in us. Through all of it, it pushes us toward and points toward the end. Because the scriptures are not the end. And many religious Christians live and act and talk as if it is, like it's here, it's here. There's nothing above this, because I, I, I can't reach farther than this, right? It's, it's, it's here. But that's not what's actually here. What's actually here, well, let me tell you, from his own mouth, Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, he says to the Pharisees, the, the most religious among them, you diligently study scripture because you think that you'll find eternal life in them. But these scriptures point to me. For Jesus says, in me is life, yet you refuse to come to me. Scripture is not the end. It is a means. It's one of the most powerful. And it's one of the tip-top means that gets us to the end, who is Jesus. That's the goal. That's the point. That's the aim. And so, may you step beyond the curtain and with kingdom perspective experience God-breathed words of encouragement, wisdom, joy, and perspective. Well, let me pray, and then... um, 
I'll see if you got any questions. My timer just hit zero. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for the scriptures, for your word. I thank you for what John recorded when you told the Pharisees that, uh, that not just them, but so many of us, that, we, that our relationship with the Bible is often trying to find the new magic, trying to find the perfect path. But as you told them that these scriptures point to you and it's in you that we would have ultimate life. And so I, my ultimate prayer for not just tonight but for this whole series is that, um, that your spirit would help move us and carry us closer to you, Lord Jesus that we would know you more. And I pray this with great hope. And in your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.